Do you employ or pay workers in other countries? Even if you don't yet, you may have to soon. Now that remote work is the norm, employees have more freedom than ever to move around. And if you want to keep your best people, you have to stay flexible. That's why remote makes it easy for companies of all sizes to employ global teams. They take care of international payroll, benefits, taxes, and local compliance, so you can focus less on paperwork and more on growing your business. Remote helps you onboard full-time employees or contractors in countries all over the world in minutes on its simple, easy-to-use platform. Even better, Remote lets you rest easy by providing the most comprehensive intellectual property protections and data security in the industry. They own full local legal entities in all their covered countries, guaranteeing that you never have to deal with a third party ever. To save you money, Remote never charges any fees or salary percentages. You get access to everything that Remote offers, from payroll to compliance to benefits management, for one low flat rate. No hidden fees, no surprises, ever. Just the best global employment solution in the business. Best of all, podcast listeners get an even bigger discount. Get your first employee free for 12 months and two months free for any additional employee onboarded during their first year. Just visit remote.com forward slash B2B better and use the promo code better. See why global companies like GitLab trust Remote to manage and pay their international teams. Whether you want to hire one person or 100, Remote makes it easy. Visit remote.com forward slash B2B better and use the promo code better to get started. Hello and welcome to B2B Better, the only podcast focused on helping early stage marketing teams do better than boring work. My name is Jason Bradwell and every week I sit down with whip smart marketing leaders to talk about what it takes to build a modern day strategy that delivers actual business results, not vanity metrics. Each episode is packed to the rafters with actionable insights and takeaways that you can put into practice today. Let me help you be better than boring. Here we go. Today on B2B Better, I'm very excited, very excited to be joined by Amanda Natividad, Marketing Architect for SparkToro. How are you doing, Amanda? I'm good. Thank you for having me, Jason. Thank you for coming on. Um, I did, that wasn't like a, I didn't misspeak by saying I'm excited twice because I am doubly excited that we finally got a chance to jump on a podcast and actually meet each other uh, face-to-face or via Zoom at least. We've been talking on Twitter for such a long time and you are such a beacon of wisdom in the marketing Twitter community. Um, I can't wait to learn from you over the next 35 minutes. Yeah, I'm so excited. This will be so much fun. Tell me a little bit about who you are and what it is that you do. Yeah, so I, let's see. Uh, right now, I am the marketing architect over at SparkToro, the audience research startup. Uh, it's a completely made-up title <laughs> that, I, uh, that I made up with with. Uh, co-founder Rand Fishkin. Uh, it's because when I joined, we were t- when we were talking about my joining, uh, we, we knew I would join in a marketing capacity, but we weren't sure what that would really look like day to day. And there's so much about SparkToro that is unique as a company. Like it's really only the three of us, uh, Rand Fishkin, Casey Henry, and I, uh, and we all pinch hit in a variety of roles. So something like a marketing manager, marketing director, marketing VP, none of that really made sense because a lot of what I, a lot of what all three of us do day to day is answer support tickets, um, troubleshoot stuff on the website, uh, improve the onboarding experience. So these things that, you know, you very much could make the case that they're related to marketing, but it's not marketing proper. Um, so we, we settled on marketing architect because my, my main skill set is in marketing, and we kind of see this as setting the foundation for what's to come, whether it's marketing or future, you know, like customer experience related stuff um, and so on. 
Um, but marketing is my sort of third career, second or third career. Um, I first started out in journalism. So I worked uh, at some of the original tech news blogs, paidcontent.org and gigaohm.com. I was there for a number of years and then decided for whatever reason that I wanted to be a food writer. So I went to culinary school uh, and didn't do any research on the food writing industry <laughs> and then realized there are like eight food writing jobs in the U.S. They're all taken. So. <laughs> but then that was kind of how I discovered um, an interest in content marketing. Um, at the time, content marketing was still kind of new. Um, and it was in this space of, you know, this was several years after Google's Penguin update and SEO. So content marketing was starting to become a thing where it was becoming reputable, where people were starting to understand, oh, SEO isn't some scammy black hat thing. Like this is actually a thing people are using to create helpful content that actually benefits the, the users or the searchers. Um, so I thought that was an interesting time to kind of get into content marketing. And then because I had the sort of newer skill set or expertise in food, uh, I was able to parlay my experience into a content marketing role at a food startup. And then now I'm here. <laughs> now you're there. Now you're there. Um, I, I love that journey. And what I love about it is that it demonstrates that you don't need to necessarily formally educate yourself at a kind of a degree level in marketing to be successful in marketing. Certainly my own experience, I went to university, I studied drama with the ambition of becoming not an actor, but like a director, very quickly realized after university that that wasn't going to pay the bills um, anytime soon. And I just wasn't committed enough to it, to the craft of acting and directing to suffer kind of 10 years sleeping on a couch to, 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 to finally get my break if indeed it ever came. But a lot of, a lot of the skills that I picked up from my theatrical background are 100% transferable. And I use every day in, in my career now as, as a marketer. And I imagine it's much the same with you from your kind of journalism background, your food background, you've picked up core skills that translate to, to kind of being a success today. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, it's, 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 I think that's a super interesting um, um, background from you too, but I think what's also, in, well, the other thing I would say is I didn't even really know until maybe last year <laughs> that you could even get a degree in marketing. I think it just never really occurred to me that anyone would do that. <laughs> I just kind <laughs> of assumed that none of us had a marketing degree and that we all just sort of fell into the craft or uh, learned about it on the job and had different kinds of experiences, but I'm very intrigued to know that you have more of a film background and, and also just to know that, to see how much this informs your podcast and probably even your newsletter and everything that you do in your day-to-day -day role. And I might even argue that this might even, that this would even give you a competitive edge on, on your, in your job. And you probably use a lot more of these skills than the average person might think. Yeah, 100%. And look, this isn't, I don't think I was saying that if you are formally educated in marketing, that isn't good, right? Everyone has to take their own path and get, you know, to get to where they want to be. Um, but certainly I've seen on Twitter a couple of times, the two camps kind of formally educated versus non-formally educated marketers kind of going up against each other and saying like, uh, you know, this is the right way or this is the right way. And I guess my message is just 
they're both the right way, right? And this job is hard enough, right, to for us to be squabbling amongst ourselves on, you know, what just what what justifies a true marketer. Um, but I can feel us kind of going into a whole different podcast episode here about the merits of of formal marketing education. And I want to make sure that we talk a little bit about, you know, your, how your experience has um, affected your your ability to to be a marketer today across in the sense that, you know, you've got quite a varied background. You've worked in B2B, you've worked in B2C, you've worked in D2C. Of those three, what's been the most challenging to work in as a marketer and why? That's an interesting question because I feel like when the average person thinks about marketing, they think about B2C. They think, oh yeah, it's selling Coca-Cola to everybody. It's stuff like that. But I think that, I think, well, in my experience, B2C has been the most difficult because it's been when I was in that role, uh, and this was at the ski lift ticket company, Liftopia, I felt like it was it was hard to measure success as a brand um, and to see the things that really move the needle. And there's also just, you know, if you are in a B2C role in a, in a company that is consumer facing, so that's the main marketing um, you have, you know, a, a bigger budget, right? As opposed to let's w- when I was at Fitbit in a B2B role, you know, Fitbit as we know it is a consumer brand, right? So B2B didn't have the entire marketing budget, obviously. Uh, so it was a whole different thing. But in a B2C role in a, in a consumer facing company, you have the whole marketing budget. And when you when you have that, then it becomes all right. Well, if we're going to have you know a million dollars or a couple million dollars, we really have to make sure we do this right and that we're attributing things correctly, that we are getting the return on our investment in terms of this marketing spend. Um, and I, of course, we know you know we 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 can track all the things like you know Google search ads and Facebook ads. Like of course we know we can track that, but then you know it's it's harder to track the things like what this means for your brand over time, how it translates into a longer sales cycle and all that stuff. So I actually felt like B2C was hardest. Do you feel that the kind of lines between kind of B2C marketing and B2B marketing are starting to blur? I know that, you know, a lot of folks now talk about kind of human to human. You can hear my, I told told you this was going to happen. My toddler screaming in the background. Um, We'll chalk this down to a blooper. Um, you know, people talk a lot about kind of human to human marketing. What what's your kind of attitude towards that? I I mean, I think you are right on point, right? Where I think we are starting to see a little bit of these lines starting to blur, and people and marketers starting to acknowledge, like, oh, I guess you know, even though we're in a B two B marketing role, like we are still marketing to people, and we still need to tap into some of their intrinsic motivations or you know, do these things that emotion that that resonate on a more emotional level. I think we're starting to see more of that. And I think it's in part because we're seeing more, um, we're seeing more companies have success with it. We're starting to see more sort of B2B influencers. So marketers in the B2B space who are kind of developing their personal brands. Like I, I feel like this is kind of I don't want to, I don't know if it's new because it's not really new, but I feel like we are seeing some kind of renaissance in this over the past like one to two years or so. Um, So I think that is kind of changing the landscape. Um, And then I think as, 
as B2B marketing evolves, um, more and more marketers are really truly understanding how how the sales cycle or how their customers don't really convert in that traditional marketing funnel. Um, so as a result, I think marketers are understanding they're needing to um, invest in campaigns that uh, might have a different kind of consumption process or, or results in people progressing through a different kind of funnel or in a different way. Um, and so, yeah. Let's dig a little bit into this marketing funnel point then, because mm -hmm. we were talking a little bit before we, um, before we started recording about, you know, if the marketing funnel or the idea of a marketing funnel is changing, you know, what is taking its place? For, for me, I think, you know, the marketing funnel is an interesting and useful visualization tool, you know, um, for marketers to use to kind of demonstrate what it is they plan to do to a, to a board or to an executive team, you know, over the course of the year to help justify the unlocking of, of a marketing budget. Um, and also to kind of rationalize the use of different channels and, you know, the investment in different kind of content types and, and what have you. I do think that it's a misconception that some marketers hold or executives hold where it's this idea that you can kind of brute force people in at the top and just keep throwing money at it and they're going to kind of fall down it in a linear sequence and that, you know, all people who enter the funnel are inevitably destined at some point to get to the bottom or indeed that outside influences can't kind of contribute to helping, helping people move down the funnel. Um, people can enter the funnel at any stage. They can spend any amount of time at any stage. Um, and I like to think of a funnel as having a lot of holes in it. People are going to fall out of it but then also people are going to kind of fall into it, not necessarily from, from the top. So um, yeah, that, that's kind of like my thinking of a funnel. It's a great visualization tool, but to believe that it's a linear sequence that B2B buyers go through point A to point B that, you know, goes from awareness to conversion is, it's just not true. It's not how buyers necessarily buy nowadays. Yeah. And I think, I mean, yeah, and, th and that kind of uh, it, it goes with the whole like MQL to SQL to PQL. And I understand that that is in place because it helps some marketing teams better align their efforts. And I know that some people are doing this really well, right? But I, I personally haven't seen it work in that magical way. I mean, you know, back I'm thinking back to Fitbit B2B because we had this whole system of like the MQLs, we had lead scoring for our content, all that stuff. We had all this stuff in place and it was still really hard to, to predict the sales cycle. It was really hard to, um, to really understand where people were in the funnel. And I'm using air quotes where they are in the funnel because, you know, we would have, we would have prospects who would stay at top of the funnel, like just looking at some of our newsletter type content and then suddenly they would be like, great, like I'm going to buy now. Or we would have people who would come to us saying, I'm going to buy now. And it was, and it was because, you know, in, 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 for Fitbit B2B, it was selling to employers devices in bulk, as well as uh, reporting software. So this is the kind of thing where, so we're selling to HR managers, benefits managers. Um, and so it wasn't like, people were just ready to buy all the time. It was kind of, it, it kind of went, it was kind of seasonal, right? So like um, in the US, um, 
September tends to be the start of open enrollment season. It's when um, human resources and benefits people are considering the are, are opening up the the pool of benefits for employees to change like their healthcare options or to opt into certain benefits. It usually happens around September, but then at sometimes so theoretically that would mean oh so then that means HR managers that means that we should be closing our sales in like July right. But it didn't always align that way. Like it, it made sense on a theoretical level, but we still had um, we still had customers who would come to us like around the holidays and say, "Oh, we're gonna, we're going to turn this into a holiday gift to our employees." So then that became the sales cycle. So it just became such that it was hard to predict who was going to convert and why, and it kind of left us short sighted in terms of uh, identifying the content that truly converts because. It was sometimes it was a blog post, sometimes it was a case study and it wasn't, you know, things were not always just so predictable. I think the idea of marketing qualified leads has been useful for us as marketers, B2B marketers, as a way to evaluate our, and to justify our existence, right? Like it gives us a quantifiable metric that moves the understanding of a marketing team as, you know, the function that makes decks look pretty or kind of sends out the odd press release and gives us something quantifiable that we can, you know, ideally, and I think this was the initial intention, attribute to revenue and business success. You know, if we bring in this number of leads and those leads convert and we make X amount of money, that should unlock X percentage growth in our budget budget next year. But certainly coming at it from the enterprise, enterprise B2B side of things, which is which is my experience the vast majority of those leads, those marketing qualified leads that are generated, um, despite our best intentions, are um, trash. You know, you, you send over a list of names um, and to, to your sales team that you've picked up after putting a load of content behind registration walls. Um, and they come back to you and say, look, you know, five to 10% of those are people who are interested in having a conversation now. 10% is probably being quite generous, actually. Um, and the rest, you know, we followed up with, we spent a bunch of time chasing and they never got back to us, um, which calls into question the, the value now now in using MQLs as a metric of, of success. Do you have any kind of thoughts around what is the right metric to measure marketing success in a B2B setting? Well, I could say what we what we do and what we track at SparkToro now, because you know SparkToro is a B two B SaaS company where we help marketers or really anybody, right? It could be small business owners, whoever it is. We help people find their audiences' sources of influence. So the podcast they listen to, the social accounts they follow, the websites they frequent, stuff like that. And I think what's part of what is so unique about SparkToro is the co-founder, Rand Fishkin. He's a very well-known digital marketer who had previously founded Moz. So in a sense, a lot of our marketing is sort of Rand-led marketing, right? Where a lot of it is people who have who followed Rand in his journey. Um, and so that puts us in a position where we're also tracking different kinds of metrics. So a, a lot of what we pay attention to is the way customers are getting value out of our product. So it's things that are that are related to our biweekly office hours. And our office hours are, we structure it such that it's, it's open to everybody, it's free to everybody. 
Um, it's basically a presentation on marketing strategy with SparkToro product demos where it makes sense. So it's more like it's for everybody, but it's better if you're a SparkToro customer, right? Mm. Um, so we, we do these events because we really want to, we really want our customers to get full value out of the product. And we really want to help people do better marketing. So the things that we track there are we, we look at registrants. Um, I think our first office hours had like over a thousand registrants, which was wow. bonkers to me. Crazy. It was really cool. And now we're at uh, around like 500, 600 or so registrants at each event. Um, Cause we kind of allow people to choose by topic. Um, so we look at that. We do have a, a bi-weekly newsletter now. So we're looking at sort of open rates and click-through rates, but something we really, really pay attention to is the qualitative stuff. Like the people who write into us and say things like, even if it's like, Hey, I have a question. How does this work? And then if we see the same question a couple of times, we, we start to evaluate, like, maybe this is confusing. Like maybe we should fix this thing. Maybe we should change the, the call to action here. Um, or we get message, we get very kind messages too sometimes where people say like, hey, I loved last week's office hours. This was great. This was super useful. And I learned, you know, I learned more about how to improve my PR outreach. So thank you for that. So we 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 look at that very much. Um, and then, you know, we also look at the things like um whenever we you know when we have a blog post out on the on the blog, like uh, what the page views look like, what the general like, kind of reception looks like. So a lot of this is pretty qualitative, right? A lot of this is like, oh, what are people saying? What do we think about that? But that's something that we very much pay attention to and that we as a lean team can make a lot of sense of because it helps. It gives us like that, the, the sort of feedback where we can iterate on that pretty quickly or, you know, uh, improve next steps from there and that sort of thing. So is the idea that, you know, if we put out into the market targeted content across, you know, whether it's a webinar format or a blog post format or an email newsletter format, if we can just deliver value into the marketplace and do that consistently and, you know, Rand's obviously got a phenomenal profile as an individual, you have a phenomenal profile as an individual. If we can continue to build, build those up, then, you know, naturally if that content resonates with our target buyers they're smart they'll dig they'll do research they'll dig in they'll go to our website they'll learn about our do go on a self-learning journey of spot itself and they will just become customers if the if the if the product is the right fit for them at this right time but the key is keep delivering that high value relevant consistent content yeah absolutely i mean we really think about like the kind of content that is worth someone's time because it is helpful to that customer, whether or not they use SparkToro, whether it's helpful to them because they use SparkToro. Um, maybe it, we, we also think about like, well, who is going to, if we create this piece of content, um, who does it ultimately benefit? What incentive does someone have to share it if they do it all? We do, we, we do think about all these things. Um, it's not, it's not to say that we everything is such a long discussion, right? Sometimes, uh, sometimes it's sort, it's sort of just like we, we just kind of know what 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 will resonate, what will what, what will not. Um, and then there was other thing I was going to say. Um, oh, and then I was going to say, uh, you know, of course there is a way to be uh, pretty data driven about this, right? Like we we do have, you know, obviously we have Google Analytics set up, and then you know you can look at things, you can set up goals and look at um, what website or what landing pages 
people are going to on your website and if they're converting to whatever, a sign up of some sort. Um, and this is something that like, you know, th- that, that can apply to anybody. I know that um, uh, they, they do this a lot at ShipBob, uh, the third party logistics company I had a brief stint at before SparkToro. And then prior to that, Growth Machine, the SEO and content agency I worked at, we really did look at how people would convert on the content based on the blog content. Um, and I also just think there's also a way to balance out your blog content so that one, maybe you are growing organic traffic to your site based on the high volume keywords. And two, that you are addressing very real pain points or problems that your potential customers are experiencing and that shows your expertise or your point of view on it. Um, That was the kind of content that was very meaningful to us at Growth Machine. Um, Now I'm just kind of rambling, but I think this will be helpful. Um, So Growth Machine, an SEO and content agency, um, one could make the case that, hey, you know, as an SEO agency, you should create a lot of content about SEO and how to do it. And we did have um, an email course on, on the basics of SEO, and that converts great. Like it, we get a lot of people that we got a lot of people that went into that sequence, and it was really high, highly valuable content. However, it, there became the question of, well, there are just so many people who have written about SEO over the years. Like we're not gonna we're not gonna outrank Moz or Hrefs. And should we, right? Like, should we really worry about that? Probably not, because we're in, at, at the end of the day, we're an agency where we grow most of our business through word of mouth. So ultimately, it's not so much that people need to know how to do SEO. It's that they need to know that we know how to do it. <laughs> so then our content was not so much about how to do SEO. It was stuff like how to know when your business is ready for link building, and how to do it. So then it became the stuff like that, that speaks to here's how to know you should hire someone to do this for you and how to find that person. So it gave people all the information they would need to know about say hiring an agency without, and, and all signs hopefully pointed to, Hey, growth machines, a great agency without saying, Hey, growth machine is a great, (laughs) great agency. I love that. And I love this whole approach about leading with with high value, relevant, targeted content consistently. I try saying that after a tequila. Um, because, you know, <laughs> because I think it addresses what is a common problem faced by B2B companies, particularly ones that are led by hitting a marketing qualified lead target, which is that it requires that company to constantly be going to their potential market, right? To their potential customers um, by investing in kind of paid, paid ads, paid media um, and what, and what have you. Whereas only five to 10% of your kind of addressable market are going to be actually looking for your product or service at any given time, right? Which leaves 90% still on the table. They may want your product at some point in the future, but they're just not ready for it right now. And that's particularly true in the enterprise space. And if you can keep up this kind of consistent, high quality content approach, which you've done with Growth Machine, they're now doing with SparkToro, what you're doing is you're basically cementing yourself as a leader in the space, whatever that space is, so that when that customer is ready to buy, instead of you having to go to them, you're already going to them by delivering consistent consistent content, but not with a sales pitch, with value, so that when they're ready to buy, they can come to you. 
right? And they're already they've already gone down that funnel um, uh, halfway by themselves because they have been educated and entertained and engaged by your brand for for so long, um, and that you've established that credibility. So they almost don't need convincing of that. They just need convincing that the product or service is the right fit amongst all the other product and services for them at that time. Absolutely. You nailed it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's really smart. And I think it's the way that most modern day B2B companies need, need to be thinking. Um, what do you think is the biggest marketing challenge, marketing challenge for B2B marketers today? Hmm. I do think one of the biggest challenges is proper sort of attribution and having that true holistic understanding of of what people, what drives people to purchase. Um, I think that's, that's a big challenge. Um, And then I don't know, and this is more of like an open question for me. I wonder what the challenge is for content in B2B teams now, because I feel like we are at a point in content marketing where it has matured enough where more and more um, uh, more and more people in a position of leadership understand that it's valuable. Um, but I don't know how much of the challenge that still is day to day. Like I don't I don't know if if marketers are having a hard time making the case for, you know, high quality content. I mean, one thing I will say, and I'll, I'm going to use Ship Bob as an example because uh, I worked there very just just for like a month or so uh, before I joined SparkToro and um, using them as an example because I mean they are an incredible company you know billion dollar company amazing marketing team that is run like a very well oiled machine um, Casey Armstrong the CMO has been doing an amazing job and um, having been kind of on the inside for a little bit you know one one theory one theory I have for that is. Um, everyone on that marketing team has some level of proficiency in content. And that's something that I've never seen in a marketing team, in a B2B marketing team before, Um, because in in prior roles and like from what I've observed in the industry, it's usually like, you know, one or two people or a few people on content who create the content and then the rest of the marketing team helps to support or or distribute it in some way. But what's interesting about ShipBob is that everybody touches content in some way where it makes sense for them. So they have, you know, um, a sort of head of content and uh, communications who has led content for a long time at ShipBob. And so she's been responsible for growing the SEO or, or using SEO to grow the traffic to their blog and been doing amazingly at that. There are other people, I think in like brand or channel marketing who are uh, who lead the webinar series and who repurpose that into podcasts. So I think what's interesting there is that because everybody has some level of proficiency in content, I think everyone inherently respects that content needs to be to a certain standard. Um, and so there isn't squabbling over things like, oh, there's a typo in this. Why don't you fix that? Or, <laughs> or like, and then, you know, push back of who cares? Let's move on. Like there isn't any of that, any of that sort of infighting over um over content it's everyone um everyone seems to take pride in it and they care about making it a very high quality that's a really interesting point and you know to to your chat to the challenge you kind of outlined at the beginning there about you know 
do most executives probably understand that the value of content is definitely there and they should have some form of strategy to to address that what i've seen and and some conversations i've had with other marketers across the space is that whilst executives understand that yes we should have some budget allocated to content production the focus lands more on quantity than quality content right we just need to be getting something out every single day every single week whatever the timeline is and it doesn't really matter what it is as long as something's going out and it sounds like what happens with ship bob is that i mean i don't know if that was if they had a kind of particular cadence that they that they they they, they stuck to in terms of their content output but the point i'm trying to make is that the emphasis should be on the quality of the content right which is what it sounds like is happening at spock toro now and you know in your previous experience at, at other roles better to get something out that's highly targeted and relevant to your audience you know once a month rather than get something out that just is vanilla and the same as all the other kind of b2b content that your competitors are putting out there every single day yeah absolutely and i really i really think that um anyone's audience cares more about quality novel um interesting insights over any kind of frequency like i mean I've, i mean i think you know at this point like we all are consuming probably too much content or or, or more than we need to right so yeah. i think we're also doing people a favor by saying you know what instead of sending you this thing every day i'm going to take a moment to to refine this a little bit more and i'm going to send it to you twice a week or once a week or twice a month instead i don't i think that um you know audiences would be grateful for that <laughs> yeah absolutely i just think sometimes you know especially when you're dealing with 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 executives they just want to see stuff happening right and i think as marketers it's hard challenge to undertake which is you know we need to make sure that we're in a position to educate the people who are unlocking our budgets that it's not mm-hmm. just about frequency it's about ensuring that these pieces resonate because as you said there's so much stuff out there we consume so much stuff in our personal and our professional lives across so many channels why just contribute to the noise right you want to cut through the noise and especially for marketers who listen to this podcast who are traditionally in smaller teams mm-hmm. there is a challenge you have to undertake which is you know um building that business case that actually if you are a one person marketing team it's okay for you to be putting out content less frequently but of super high quality much better than just putting out stuff every single day because some executive wants to see something on their timeline. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought of it that way either, but but that that is a good point. I think um it's easy to get caught up in that. Yeah. What do you think is going to be the biggest change in how B2B companies market themselves over the next 5 years? Ooh, that's a fun question. Um I really do think we're going to continue to see more B2B companies um try to take the be a mini media company approach. Like I think uh you know in a world where it seems like everyone has a newsletter, everyone has a podcast, everyone has a YouTube channel. Um I still think we're in some of the early days of a lot of this. Um and I think there's still opportunity for companies or B2B teams to come in and um and do this right, right? Like I th- I still think even though it feels like everyone has a newsletter, when you think about marketing newsletters in general there are probably still only a couple that you really that you really uh you know read every single week or whatever whatever cadence they they produce it um so i think there's still opportunity for companies to you know to produce their own content that kind of um 
rightfully positions, positions themselves as thought leaders in that space, um, then I think that's exciting. I think, um, I think it's going to be an exciting time for B2B content over the next couple of years. I think, um, yeah, I think I'll wrap this up by saying, you know, where it seems like everyone has, let's say a podcast because we are talking on a podcast. Um, I think there are, you know, there are not a ton of people who are doing it amazingly well, but I think more and more people are understanding, um, you know, what it takes to get it done, to, to, to do it in a compelling way. Um, and also we know that, well, you and I know, because I used to do a podcast, you are currently doing one, that it's hard, right? It's a little bit, it's a little bit of a grind. And even when you do like 10 episodes, it doesn't really get that much easier, does it? <laughs> like it re- you just become to tolerate the difficulty. <laughs> you do. And the best you can do is just try and figure out a process, I think, yeah. you know, and create create the templates and the workflows and the automations, if you can, that just rip out some of those kind of micro tasks that come with the production of content. That's something that as a solo creator, I've really been trying to figure out over the last year and a half I've been doing this. You know, you if you approach everything fresh, if you approach every content piece afresh and you don't have a system to manage it, it takes a lot of time. It's going to take a lot of time, whatever you do, but if you can figure out a process, it can cut that time you know, down, which is, which is what you should be aiming for. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and, I, and by the way, I don't mean to, to mention this in a kind of negative way. I just, I'm pointing out like, it's, you know, this stuff is to do this right. It takes quite a bit of work. And I think, um, I, I still think that more, more people than people who don't, uh, more people kind of give up at yeah. a certain point. And they're like, I can't, I can't do this thing. I can't, I can't keep writing this blog. It's taking too much out of me. And which is which is why I think there will always be opportunity for people to create great content. Yeah. Amanda, I've loved this conversation because you are so knowledgeable in the marketing space. And I've really enjoyed kind of diving into your wealth of experience across a different different verticals um, to help B2B marketers. Tell me, who should I interview next on B2B Better? Oh, I think you should reach out to Pat Timmons. Um, he's now doing social media over at Webflow. Uh, and came from Drift. So I think he'd be a great addition to this. I love Pat. I've been talking to him on Twitter a little bit. I know he's just about to launch a book, I think, which is really exciting, or if he maybe he's launched it already, um, I will definitely reach out to him and get him on the podcast. Amanda, for anyone who wants to learn more about you and follow you on social media, where can they find you? Uh, Yeah, you can all find me on Twitter at Amanda Nat. You can also find me somewhere on SparkToro. I run the SparkToro account as well, at SparkToro. Um, and then we also have this secret newsletter. So I don't know, ping me, find it. You'll find it. <laughs> this is your secret newsletter, right? No, this is the SparkToro secret newsletter. I didn't even know how many secret newsletters are there out there because I only found out about your newsletter like three weeks ago and I had to email you for, a, for to, to subscribe to it because I was getting people telling me there's a, these amazing recipes in Amanda's newsletter that I need to get get in on. Um, so yeah. I'm going to now have to dig out the SparkToro newsletter as yeah. well. Yeah, maybe we'll, I'll, I'll send the, I'll send you the landing page and we can put it in the show notes maybe, but maybe that's my strategy, just creating a bunch of secret content, hoping people find it. <laughs> yeah, it makes things like, I mean, that is not a bad strategy, actually. Make it super exclusive. Because when I signed up to yours newsletter, I think it was before you put on the, um, your, your kind of link on your, on your Twitter profile, I did feel like I was joining a club. I was like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm part of the Amanda Club now and I like it. <laughs> yeah. I'm into it. I think I'm, I think it's always going to, I think my personal newsletter will always be a secret newsletter. 
Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a great strategy. Um, all right, I will leave the links to your social profiles and to the secret newsletters where I can in the description of this episode. But otherwise, Amanda, thank you so much for coming on to B2B Better. Yeah, thank you for having me, Jason. It was fun. Do you employ or pay workers in other countries? Even if you don't yet, you may have to soon. Now that remote work is the norm, employees have more freedom than ever to move around. And if you want to keep your best people, you have to stay flexible. That's why remote makes it easy for companies of all sizes to employ global teams. They take care of international payroll, benefits, taxes, and local compliance, so you can focus less on paperwork and more on growing your business. Remote helps you onboard full-time employees or contractors in countries all over the world in minutes on its simple, easy-to-use platform. Even better, Remote lets you rest easy by providing the most comprehensive intellectual property protections and data security in the industry. They own full local legal entities in all their covered countries, guaranteeing that you never have to deal with a third party ever. To save you money, Remote never charges any fees or salary percentages. You get access to everything that Remote offers, from payroll to compliance to benefits management, for one low flat rate. No hidden fees, no surprises, ever. Just the best global employment solution in the business. Best of all, podcast listeners get an even bigger discount. Get your first employee free for 12 months and two months free for any additional employee onboarded during their first year. Just visit remote.com forward slash B2B better and use the promo code better. See why global companies like GitLab trust Remote to manage and pay their international teams. Whether you want to hire one person or 100, Remote makes it easy. Visit remote.com forward slash B2B better and use the promo code better to get started. And that's it for this episode of B2B Better. If you enjoyed the interview, go ahead and subscribe to my podcast, leave a rating, a comment, a review, or just share it on social media. It'll really make my day. Every Monday morning, I send out a newsletter to B2B marketers all around the world on how to do better B2B marketing. You can sign up to that via the link that I'm going to leave in the description of this episode. Or if you need a fix of B2B marketing content goodness right now, you can head over to my website at www.jasonrbradwell.com. See you next week. This episode was sponsored by Remote.